Hello, friends. It is episode 65 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric, and I am joined, as always, by Mike Thomas. And how are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing great, Eric. How are you doing this week? Recovering uh, as best <laughs> I can. Um, for those that aren't aware, I was um, heavily involved in the R Pharma conference last week. Got to see both sides of it, so to speak. I presented as well as helping with some backstage endeavors and i'm still processing all of it but i think it went through almost as successful as we could have hoped for and if any of you did tune into that and want to know when the recordings will be up um, they will be up in a few weeks and stay tuned for that i will be tweeting that out when it's out congrats on a great conference to everybody involved in our pharma and congrats to you on a great job in the sessions that you were involved in i learned a ton from tuning in so hopefully anybody that follows along, check out the recordings when they do pop up. Yep, there's some for everybody. I know sometimes life sciences gets a little wrap of being a little behind the times, but no, in this group, we're pushing the envelope in ways that, frankly, even the author, Shiny himself, didn't expect us to. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun time. Well, we'll hear about that, I'm sure, later. But today we are covering the issue highlights um, that have been curated by Miles McBain. And as always, with help from our R Weekly team members and contributors. Now, if any of you have listened to my previous podcast or watched some of my content more recently on my live streams, you may know that I have a certain soft spot for what I consider the golden age of video gaming, the 8-bit and 16-bit era of the 80s and 90s. Yes, I still play these from time to time because I love retro gaming. On the surface, you might look at the sprite graphics and sometimes chiptune sound effects and think, yeah, there's not much to this. But these games were quite complex, especially those that let you roam the world in an open way. I'm looking at games like Zelda, Metroid, many others in this space. And in fact, in my very early days, when I would get a game like Zelda, I would even try drawing the map myself as I would have traversed this world to figure out where are the dungeons, where are the key items, where are the areas I should probably stay away from. And yeah, that takes a lot of effort. <laughs> um, but then as technology advanced, then these games would either have a built-in map that you could call up, say, at a pause screen, or you would have very dedicated users online or players online that would literally take screenshots of these maps and put them as images on various sites to be like strategy guides or, or walkthroughs of the game. Now, it's one thing to do this with the old school pen and paper out like little old me did, but imagine being able to take one of these digital versions of a map and be able to analyze specific points of interest all within the confines of R itself. Does that seem far-fetched? Well, if you listen to our week of highlights, you should know that almost anything is possible these days. And that's exactly what self-described data botherer Matt Dre from the UK has explored in his latest post on the Rostrum blog that's covered for our first highlight today. So apparently Matt is quite a fan of the Pokemon series, which great, great series, of course. And in one of the, in much like one of the classic series I mentioned earlier, each game in the Pokemon series has sometimes an intricate map of the different villages you can go to and various points along the way. So not just inspired by the Pokemon franchise, but also a current 
challenge ongoing called the 30-Day Map Challenge, uh, Matt downloaded an image file of what's called the Kanto region from the Pokemon Red and Blue series, and he proceeded to plot that map directly in R via very basic plotting functionality. But then this is the part that I did not know existed before. But apparently in base R, there is a locator function. And when you run that, you get a prompt for you to click on whatever plot or image you have put in the plot viewing window, and it will record the X and Y coordinates of wherever you picked. Imagine throwing that into a function to prompt you for the various points of interest in your desired map, such as these village names, for example. And after recording all these coordinates in a simple data frame, then you can do some really cool stuff with this. In fact, he was able to plot a network of the paths between the different villages that the game would ask you to traverse in, and even be able to calculate distance using pixels and converting that to kind of more human metric system uh, measures. And when I saw this, it reminded me a bit of something I did in Shiny a while back, where in few releases ago, the Shiny team has put in functionality that when you render a plot, you can make it interactive, whether it's a base plot or a plot with ggplot2, and be able to brush a selection of certain points or click various points and be able to record that. Now, I thought that was only something I could do in Shiny, but what Matt shows me is that, lo and behold, this function has been in base R for who knows how long. So there's no, no limit to your imagination on the kind of things you can do with this. Um, but I, I'd imagine, Mike, you've probably been a fan of various uh, endeavors like this. What did you think of this? So seeing screenshots from OG Pokemon screens that I spent hours looking at on my Game Boy Color uh, was a heck of a throwback for me this week. We used to vacation to vermont every weekend in the winter time because uh, my my grandparents had a house up in vermont on a ski mountain and it was four hours away and every weekend my parents would plop me in the back seat of the car and i'd be playing pokemon on my game boy color and i didn't even know that those four hours passed uh, that's how much time <laughs> i had spent so it was yes it was very cool to see this blog bring back a, a lot of strong memories and, and like you said about the, the locator function, the, the packages that are just in the base R install, every once in a while, a function just comes along that I never knew existed and absolutely blows me away. And the locator function from the graphics package did the exact same thing to me. Um, the author literally wrote in his blog post, this is not magic. And <laughs> I, I think uh, th that's just pretty ironic considering what that function actually does. It captures your mouse click within the plot viewer in the RStudio IDE and returns the coordinates of where you click. So very, again, like you said, similar to the brushing that we do within Shiny. As far as his blog goes and his explanations, I really liked his use of a GIF, a GIF, I don't know, GIF, GIF, what, what the kids are calling it these days. But to, to show the entire process of writing and executing the R functions and then clicking on the plot in the R Studio viewer pane. It was a very nice interactive visual that he put in there that really explains the crux of what he's trying to do here. So all of his code um, for this locate points custom function he wrote is again base R um, and it, 
you know, matches the points you click on to a list of character strings to create a neat data frame that contains the name of each place uh, and the associated coordinates that you clicked on. So his character strings were all um, these different locations uh, on, a, on a Pokemon map, different, uh, you know, boss locations or, or landmarks or, or all sorts of cities, um, things like that, that he provided. So it was very cool. And once you have these coordinate pairs, you can do all sorts of geospatial calcs and plotting, just like you said. So I can see so many different potential real world applications for these functions and for following along with this blog post that he's put together for folks that like me weren't familiar with the locator function yet. So, um, you know, I think maybe one caveat there is as you begin to apply this in the real world is that, you know, the, the coordinates are dependent on the exact location where a user clicks on the map. So if you're trying to click on a point, there might be this, this small margin of error between the actual location. If you're really doing in-depth, uh, deep geospatial stuff, um, there might be that small margin of error between where you clicked and where the actual point is located on the map. So just some food for thought as you try to apply this to your own data science work. Yeah. Um, again, I was blown away that this has been in there for who knows how long, but I did have a, maybe a fun project that might try this out with is, um, I've been trying to off and on throughout probably five years, um, do some fun stuff with the Mega Man franchise that I used to play growing up and getting some data from wiki sites about the robot masters and their metrics and all that fun stuff. They had maps too. So I, I may uh, try this locator function on some more eight bit looking maps just to see how far I can push it. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's amazing with a little creativity, what you can do with, with, with these kind of functions and be able to, yeah, maybe use that for future projects in a much uh, more scaled way. Yeah. And I think this blog, especially the Pokemon reference was probably, uh, you know, quite applicable to everybody <laughs> that read it and invoked a lot of strong memories, just like they did uh, in myself. So hopefully that helps users connect with the actual functionality that he's he's put together here. Yeah. It always resonates more when you have something that you have an interest in, either, you know, for hobbies or other domain knowledge. It, it always makes it easier. Well, we're not done with GigiPod 2 yet, folks. And our next holiday, we're going to stay on the visualization theme and touch on something that I brought up uh, now, it seems like a long time ago. Um, back in episode 43, I covered a very innovative extension that came around called GGGrid, authored by one of the R core team members themselves, Paul Murrell. And which, what GGGrid does, if you didn't listen to that episode, it exposes a few additional tricks or functionality from the grid system. And if you don't know what the grid system is, this is actually the underlying layer for visualizations that powers ggplot2 as well as Lattice. Lattice is another quite powerful plotting uh, package in R that's actually built into the base R installation. But in the default behavior, with things like ggplot2, you don't get a lot of interaction with the lower level grid system. But Paul has authored ggGrid as a way for you to kind of tap into that additional functionality if you know what you're doing and if you want some further customization that simply was not possible. And I knew it wouldn't take long for others in the R community 
to tap into this capability that GGGrid exposes. And one of the most prolific experts in both visualization and frankly, pushing the envelope with the limits of what R can do, they took advantage of that as well. His name is Mike FC, but you may know him more by his unique handle, Cool But Useless, which I still get a kick out of reading that every time because he's anything but useless in the content that he creates. <laughs> well, he produced a short yet very powerful post on how he was able to use ggGrid combined with some custom functions to plot not just regular points on a ggplot image, but points that were powered by the grid system itself. Pretty interesting stuff, and the code is all there. But I don't know, what were your impressions of, of this functionality, Mike? Yeah, so this is another you know case of bending data viz in ways that I had never seen before. And the, the ecosystem of ggplot add-on packages like this ggGrid package you know, never ceases to amaze me as folks push the limits of data viz in R. Um, you know, I think what I would call a shape um, is actually called a grob to folks who are more kind of in the, in the uh, geometric data viz space. So, um, you know, I've seen some folks do similar things to what he accomplishes at the end of this blog, you know, using some pretty complex ggplot code to, for instance, use an image of an apple for each point in a scatter plot or, or build a bar chart out of, um, you know, different images, things like that. So it's nice to see that, that folks are continuing to make it easier for end users to make really creative data visualizations like the one that he authors at the end of this blog. So I found it very interesting to see that he he actually created his own grob uh, of a five point star using the the polygon grob function from the grid package that you talked about before. Um, so then he develops this very clean function to turn the coordinate points specified by the user into a set of grobs inside a single grob tree object, which is another function from the grid package grob tree. So I'm honestly not super familiar with going deep into the bowels of the grid system and, and Lattice and ggplot. Um, I'm more of a consumer of what it does for me as opposed to diving deep into the source code. But you know, this, again, I think maybe goes back to my lack of using much trig or, or geometry in my data science consulting work. So I think it's opening my eyes as, hey, this is a space that I might want to spend some time um, on looking into since it seems like such a hot topic on R Weekly lately. So, so very interesting. And again, I would agree that all of the blog posts and content that I've seen from, from Mike on Twitter and uh, other places on the internet is anything but useless and, and much more cool than it is useless. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've followed his blog for a long time. And interestingly enough, um, I, he often gets questions of, hey, are you going to put this package on CRAN? He, he typically keeps his packages in the development mindset, but maybe maybe in time he'll make that jump. Who knows? Um, but you'll always learn something new. And I, too, have not gone as in-depth into my ggplot customizations to get into the grid system, other than maybe a long time ago like superimposing a little table of metrics that was created with grid grobs in like the upper corner of a plot window. That's about as far as I got. And I got pretty good with the standard functionality, but 
goodness gracious, there's so much more you can do with this. And I guess it's more about finding finding the right inspiration, finding the right use cases for it. But certainly this this post may uh, turn a few wheels in, in people's heads about visualization techniques here. Definitely. And I, I think it, again, also speaks to just the, the flexibility of what you can accomplish in ggplot too. how, you know, it's very easy to probably generate a plot that represents what you want in, in terms of visualizing your data. But you still also, it, it's not such high level code that you can't do incredible things like what Mike put together here. So we are gonna leave the world of ggplot for our last highlight, but it's another area that Mike and I are both very invested in is helping, letting Shiny help you, so to speak. So what do we mean by this? Well, we often talk about Shiny as a way to communicate, say data science analysis results to key stakeholders who are not data scientists or statisticians and they're consuming the, the results of this analysis, or it might be a full-fledged analytical pipeline that you've put into um, the hands of those that maybe aren't experts in R. But at least for me, I often will build small yet fit-for-purpose type apps to literally help me as in myself do my own job. And for example, I had a project a year ago where I was building a very powerful shiny application for a production situation and throughout the project management life cycle the uh, project managers that wanted updates and wanted to communicate that with other stakeholders were always asking me so eric how many open issues do you have on your github repo you know how many of you closed like what what's the what's the project board looking like well i figured instead of me manually pulling that, I would make a shiny app to pull that my pull that with the GitHub API and let them export it as a simple spreadsheet to put in their fancy schmancy forecasting software and just be done with it. That's so that awesome. then I don't have to manually do that every time. They can go there and serve it up themselves. That's all possible for a few reasons, of course, but one of them is that services like GitHub have a very powerful API. API is a very powerful way to access the backends, or you might say behind the UIs of the various services that we consume on a daily basis, such as GitHub, GitLab, a lot of these mechanisms have that. And the API can expose lots of functionality like opening and closing issues, or even renaming the branches in your repository. We're gonna hit on that a lot here because for the past year or so, there's been a pretty concerted effort in the broader tech and data science communities um, across multiple disciplines that there might be advantageous to change the default naming convention of that original, or you might say default branch in a given Git repository. It's been typically called master, but there has been a lot of movement to make that into a term that's more intentional on what it really represents, such as calling it a main branch. That's gotten a lot of, a lot of positive buzz lately. Well, it's one thing to say that. How do we actually go about doing that? Especially for organizations or even engineers themselves that have not just a couple repos, but perhaps many, many repos of different packages, different libraries, what have you. So the R Studio team 
is encountering this right now. And Jenny Bryan, who's of course on the Tidyverse team, is leading a very wide scale and frankly complex effort to rename all the default branches in each of the Tidyverse package repos from master to main. And hopefully not being having to do this in a manual way. So she recently authored a nice blog post to detail how they've been enhancing the use this package, which many of you may know as a great front end to launching package infrastructure, getting your Git environment set up from R itself, and frankly, much more. But to enhance that with additional backend functions that get into the Git GitHub API to rename these branches with a simple function call. So that's great. And obviously that is key to making this hopefully more attainable. But like any really highly talented group of, of engineers, Jenny's not the only one thinking of this problem in her same company. Garrick Aiden Bowie, who's on their education team, decided to take it up even another set of notches and build a shiny app in front of this. Because what they wanted to do was have kind of, at least from what I can tell, the best of both worlds. Having a quick visual look at what repos you have available, being able to perform perhaps custom sorting on different metrics to pinpoint which repos probably need that attention the most, and to simply put in a simple button click to launch all this processing that Use This is offering all within the confines of our studio via an RStudio add-in or a Shiny app. This makes it to me more than worth a look whether you're in this situation or not because this is a great example of how you can expose some pretty intricate backend technology in an intuitive way for either yourself personally or even just some other end users on your team that wanna help you with enhancing your productivity. So I think that's really novel and I'm curious, Mike, what were your takes on, on what Garrick and, and Jenny have done here? Yeah, so, so I totally agree. You know, again, I find it incredible that Jenny, Brian, and team have developed a, a single function that doesn't even take any arguments in the use this package to rename a Git branch. Now, sometimes I just jump into our studio and type use this colon colon, hit tab, and look at all of the different functions in that package because the functionality is so widespread. And, and that's something back when I used to work with more coworkers, you know, sometimes we would take a half an hour meeting just to do that exact same exercise uh, with dplyr or something like that, to look at some of the functions that maybe you don't use uh, as often, but are contained in some of the favorite packages that you're loading day in and day out. And every once in a while, we found ourselves finding some function that, that made um, you know, code that we were writing much more concise. It eliminated, you know, writing three or four lines of code down into to one code. So I encourage you to spend some time doing that, um, just exploring the different functionality of packages and especially use this because I think if you haven't been exposed to it before, there has to be at least one function in there that will significantly help your workflow. Um, and those who work with Git, you know, know that renaming a branch isn't exactly a trivial exercise um, and would typically take some decent hacking at the Git bash shell, I would say. Um, so seeing Garrick and Jenny uh, making this process easier, you know, Garrick decided to provide, go one step further and provide a GUI based alternative to doing this inside of a Shiny app. 
So it's, it looks like it's a competition to make things as easy as possible on end users, which is just another reason to love the R community, in my opinion. Um, so this is something that I'm, I'm still admittedly in the process of working on across all of my repos. And now I'm excited that these tools can help me greatly expedite this process. Um, and maybe one thing to note for the listeners out there is that this app isn't deployed anywhere because it's native to your own GitHub. It's for personal use. So if you want to get started, I recommend cloning Garrick's repo um, that's within the blog and following his detailed instructions to launch the app on your own machine, referencing your own GitHub repositories. So yeah, really, really enjoyed this, this blog post as well. And uh, looking forward to watching my newsfeed on GitHub and seeing everybody slowly update and change uh, their, their branch naming conventions using these tools. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, there's never any shortage of opportunities, especially from my own work where I can quickly, you know, cook something up in, in a shiny as an RStudio add-in or, or whatever to, to make my life easier. And that little issue exporter thing, was it easy to make per se? Well, maybe not, but it was one of those things where if you take that investment up front, you save all that time later on. And I can imagine for others that are leading, you know, pretty widespread development projects that are spread across multiple repos that taking advantage of the automation that the, the use this and by proxy, the branch mover app are, are providing to you, that investment is worth it. But of course, in this case, with what Garrick's done, you don't have to build that yourself. You just clone that repo and go to town on it. Uh, it's really, really amazing. open source. It is open source, right? I mean, that's, that's the beauty of it. That's why I love this community. And that's why every time I have to dive into proprietary stuff, I'm like, oh, I missed the R stuff already. <laughs> I think we were all on the same page there at R and Pharma last week. Yes, yes. We, we had some uh, candid jokes about a certain other product that has three letters that does not give us the same uh, warm and fuzzy feelings as, as what, we, what we have in this community here. That, that's not just in Pharma, I promise you. Yes, <laughs> right, right. That is true. That is true. Yep. Well, yeah. So it's, uh, as usual, we got another, uh, amazing issue in store for you. Um, Mike, why don't you want to, you want to mention one of the other stories that caught your attention? Sure. There were a bunch of really good ones. You know, one that I saw that came straight out of our studio was their announcement of compatibility with AWS SageMaker. So I, I know that there's a lot of orgs out there probably doing some really cool stuff on AWS and leveraging some of the machine learning and AI tools that, that AWS has. And RStudio took advantage of uh, what AWS has. And, and you know, instead of trying to recreate the wheel, they, they built some collaborative tools. So via RStudio Workbench, you know, now you can easily access and use your organization's data that's stored on AWS as well as leverage SageMaker's AI and deep learning capabilities, which are Python-backed and, and used via the Reticulate package. So, so play very well within our Studio Workbench. And, and the nice thing about um, this uh, co collaboration between our Studio and SageMaker is that you get this pre-configured environment that includes all of the dependencies that you would normally have with SageMaker, but you get to do your scripting and your development within you know, your familiar RStudio IDE. 
Um, and you can choose your instance type, you know, your, with your desired compute and memory based upon the size of the workload. So I think what this really lends, um, you know, multilingual data scientists, the capability to do is jump between Jupyter Notebooks, which were already pretty native to SageMaker, and now uh, our studio, you know, scripts or our studio notebooks or, or our markdown um, to be able to have both tools at your disposal, both R and Python um, with SageMaker on the back end. So I think, you know, I'm not a big consumer of, of AWS SageMaker, but I know that there are a lot of people that are. So I imagine that this should be some pretty big news um, to the R folks, especially who are using SageMaker day in and day out. Yeah, that definitely got my attention when this came out because my organization is very heavily invested in AWS now. And I have many colleagues that are using SageMaker for um, AI and ML pipelines. And I'm definitely going to give this a look and maybe I'll be playing with this uh, in a few months down the road. Um, and one, one area that caught my attention that is something I haven't dived into in terms of having a project that needed it, but I've always been, you know, curious intellectually on it, is the Apache Arrow project. And for those that aren't aware, Arrow is a, a very performant data binary format that promises interoperability between um, objects created via R in the Arrow package or even Python and be able to pass them back and forth and have some pretty significant gains in read and write times. Well, their team at the Apache Arrow Project has released a brand new cookbook, which I think if you haven't gotten started in this area before, this is definitely your best guide to, to getting on board with it. And maybe I will have a project with it that could use it in the near future. So I'm going to be kind of leveling up my skill set of Apache Arrow with this uh, new cookbook that was released. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Apache Arrow. I'll put a link to a GitHub repo that I developed that was actually used at the UseR conference. Neil Richardson, um, I believe, was the one who gave the talk and referenced that uh, we at Catchbook had been using Arrow um, as the back end for data processing within a Shiny app. Um, just because the performance was incredible, we could apply dplyr verbs to Arrow tables that would, under the hood, I think pretty much just compile C++ code and, and run the compute against these very, very large data sets so fast that, that it was not noticeable to the front end users that these big workloads were going on behind the scenes. And this was all being done in memory, which was pretty incredible. Um, so I'll put a link to, to that repo for anybody that might be interested in taking a look at it. I know there was a, a very new release of the Apache uh, of the Arrow um, project. So look out for the release notes on that and, and the new updates there. I think it has to do with uh, summarization and aggregation improvements for R. And uh, I think that Arrow is really potentially the, the future of a lot of, uh, 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 as a solution to a lot of use cases that I know data scientists have. You know, we benchmarked it against uh, packages like data.table and saw that Arrow was performing even faster than that package. So great to have all these different tools um, within our tool belt again. Color me intrigued because I've had some issues in the past with data in traditional flat file formats like CSVs that are just a, a real chore to chog through in our analytical processing and like bigger shiny apps. 
So I'm thinking I need to, I need to give Arrow a second look, especially if, like you said, it exposes a lot of that um, comfort of dplyr like uh, pipelines for various operations and being highly performant. Um, that that's music to my ears. I'm really trying to get better at performance these days. So that's cool. Yes. And, and I think it plays nicely with columnar storage formats like parquet files, um, which we find are, are more lightweight than something like a CSV to start with uh, in, in terms of storage. But also, you know, when you're, you're doing operations on, on columnar databases, there can be pretty significant speed improvements over you know, typical flat files. Very nice. I know what I'll be reading when I get a spare moment later on. Well, then there's there's much more to the issue. And of course, if you're if you're new to the podcast and want to know where the heck can I go to find this great information, that's simple. It's rweekly.org. You're going to find the latest issue linked directly at the top, along with an archive of all the previous issues and a link to this very podcast at the top of the banner. So you can find all the back catalog of the fun topics that we've explored um, throughout the previous 64 episodes. So uh, Mike, where can people find you online if they want to get in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. Let us know how we're doing. You bet. You bet. And um, a special thanks to you, Mike, for the the great posts on LinkedIn. Um, That was much appreciated earlier about the R Pharma plug. Um, so you'll find both him and I um, spreading the word in various ventures. Um, I can be found at the Rcast on Twitter. You can find the live streaming shenanigans I perform on a weekly basis at twitch.tv slash rpodcast. And definitely check out the back catalog of my main rpodcast, which I hope to launch maybe again in the future. <laughs> but that'll do it for us for episode 65. And we'll be back with another batch of our weekly highlights next week.